and let us open with prayer. Heavenly Father, throughout the centuries and ages of man, you have chosen prophets and gifted them with prophecy. You've chosen preachers and gifted them with preaching. And you've chosen teachers and gifted them with teaching. We are thankful today for our teacher, Dr. Lloyd. May his words be the truth. May they inspire us that our souls and minds and spirits may be renewed. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. How are we doing today? That is odd that you're sitting so far away. <laughs> it's like, did I brush my teeth? Of course I did. <laughs> All right, we're going to talk about Philippi, or Philippoi, as it would be in the Greek there. It's the first Christian church in Europe. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I think this whole Europe-East-West uh, distinction thing is pretty goofed up in the sense that I was taught that Aristotle and Plato were of my Western tradition. But I'm about as Celtic as you could possibly be, and we were bashing each other in the head when Aristotle was doing what he was doing. And if you look at the way Aristotle thought and Plato thought, it was much more what we would call Eastern than what you would call Western. So the West has taken and chosen some of the more Westernish parts. <laughs> but both of them believed in reincarnation. Um, both of them had a, a lot of beliefs that we would call the mystical East. So this distinction's dubious anyway. But officially, Greece is in Europe, since it's not in the Middle East. And of course, the world's much smaller than I think it is. When I was in Europe one time, uh, you know, sometimes Europeans will just say something to you because you're an American. Like they're, they're, a little, they're a little miffed with America, perhaps at times, a little frustrated with some of the decisions we make, and they'll just say it. But this really stuck with me. She said, you know, you guys call it the Middle East, but it's right next door to us. <laughs> to you, it's the Far East. It's a long way away. But to them, it's right next door, and this is proof of it, that all Paul had to do was go to Asia Minor and then leap right over into Greece. Now, we also, uh, to call it Greece is very anachronistic. I remember when a friend of mine taught me that word in college, anachronism. She was like, that's anachronistic, and she was always saying things about that. I never knew what she was talking about. But it means out of time. So, uh, for example, you're watching Gone with the Wind, and there's a guy wearing a wristwatch. And that big scene when you go out, <laughs> there's a, the Downton Abbey just got caught for having a water bottle in the, in the background. Okay, so some anachronisms happen that way. But to call it Greece is anachronistic. It was a combination of Thrace and uh, Macedonia, and they called themselves Greeks generally, but there was no place called Greece. And they spoke a Greek language. So basically, they were a language group, kind of more like Latin America would be today, or, or Latin cultures would be today. All right. So what did Philippi look like? I hope it looked a lot better than that, but this is what's left. And actually, Philippos means lover of horses, which is why all the kings named Philip of Macedonia were called Philip. They loved horses. All right, so the city was established, you know, surprisingly by a guy named, you know, Philip. They were modest in those times. And of course, as you know, Philip of Macedon, eventually the Philip line leads to Alexander. I, they just broke the chain. Philip, 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 Alexander. All right, so it was abandoned in the 14th century after the Ottoman conquest. As we have seen, most of the places we are studying eventually succumbed to uh, the Turkish Empire. It's still there. There's a city, uh, a municipality now still called Philippoi. 
And I didn't want you to confuse it with Caesarea Philippi, which is actually in the, old, in the New Testament area. All right, so there it is up there in Greece. So we're talking about the first Christian church officially in Europe. And as you can see, here's Europe, there's Greece. So it makes sense, but that's, it's weird that we just call this a dividing line and somehow that's Turkey, the Middle East, and this is, but it's all the same place. This is why the Balkans have always been like, what are they? Right? Are they Europe? Are they dibbling on the Russian part of this continent? All right. Philippi was a Greek city, and there was recently a Thracian colony called Crenides, which means the fountains. I didn't find much evidence there were fountains there. But it was a fountain of something called gold, so a pretty valuable place. And they, uh, so it was established as a garrison. And it, I like that if it doesn't put everybody to sleep. Oh, I see. All right, then. I put it on block to show up. I hope it works. All right. But the red's not working too well, is it? Anyway, um, it was established as a garrison and had its own political institutions and a democratic form of government, at least up until Roman rule. It was a city of about 2,000 people, so not as large by any means as Ephesus. And uh, the evidence of it now is they had a Greek theater, they had a Roman forum, of course, from the Roman times. And the thing I want to focus on, of course, I'm always looking for, as I talk about before, an angle. And this is one of my angles today. They, uh, among many cities, were famous for their hero cult. And what that meant was, um, well, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, but the word hero, we'll talk about what that means. Also, this word looks crazily like Christos, Eskatistes is the foundation hero of the city. All right, so what does the word hero mean? Well, it's like a lot of things. One of these days I want to do a YouTube series uh, of just life observations, and one of them is going to be right in front of you. It's going to be called Right in Front of You. <laughs> <laughs> and this would be one of them. Hero. What word is in there? Hera. The protector goddess. But it's funny, it's a female term. We take the word, we, uh, when we say the word hero, often we are thinking of a male. And it's funny, it doesn't originate that way at all. It originates from the goddess Hera. Heros. And you can see that in Heracles, whose name gets mispronounced as Hercules, but Heracles was named after Hera, which was an insult because he was not her son. He was a bastard son of her husband. So, yeah, try that sometime, gentlemen. Have an illegitimate child and name it after your wife. <laughs> and you wonder why Hera wanted to kill him. All right. The actual word in English was coined in 1387 for the Greek Eros, protector, defender, and it's after the goddess Hera, Hervos, and Herfo. It is the link to the Latin word servo, which means to serve, of course, and Hervati and Avestan, to keep vigil over. <coughs> originally, a hero, and there's some theory about what originally meant, a hero was a demigod, a, a half usually half God, half human, or, you know, like Heracles. And uh, it was a distinctive feature of, of ancient Greek religion, and particularly Greek idea of hero. Um, later, the hero or heroine becomes someone who's known uh, in the face of danger and adversity from a position of weakness to act in courage and self-sacrifice for the greater good of all humanity. Now, you can read that list and you can see right away why Paul might want to characterize Jesus as a hero. It, it only meant in war at first, but eventually it meant moral excellence as well. 
Of course, the great hero of Greek culture would be Odysseus. Now, when we talk about hero cults, what we're referring to is at first it was about the heroes of the Trojan War, and then it came to mean specifically a dead man. <laughs> so you couldn't really be a hero in your life. But afterward, you would be venerated and given a shrine. And the reason that you were is because of your fame. Kleos is the Greek word, glory. We translate it as glory. That's not the best translation. I think I'm feeding back just slightly. Um, an unusual manner of death can get you on the hero list. So again, you can see where Paul would want to tap into this idea. <coughs> and once you had passed, they, the reason that you were given a shrine is because it was believed you had the power to do what? To support and protect the living. So you're more, the hero was more than human, but less than a god. Kind of an in-between. All right, it's also distinct from the ancestor worship that kind of uh, where it originated, where it was, uh, you know, families would revere their own ancestors. But this became civic rather than within families. And it's different than the Roman cult of the dead emperors because in the, Ro the Romans believed that the emperor actually became a god. The Greeks believed that this person lived under the earth but could still protect you. And so, our word for today, thontic. <laughs> the, the cults were thontic in nature, meaning that, and this kind of explains it here, even though it doesn't seem to. Uh, the thontic uh, worship was done at night, and usually the sacrifice was totally given to the god. Nobody ate any of the food. Now, Again, you can see why in the Greek world, Christianity gets associated with hero cults because of this, because they usually worshipped at night. It was a more convenient time for slaves and other people who had limited times to get out of the, in the, of the house to meet. So they would meet at night, they would meet underground, they would meet in, in the dark, and so they got associated with this idea. That could be a good thing or a bad thing in that time. All right, a little more about Philippi. I'm not going to get into all of this. <coughs> there was actually a battle there where the assassins of Caesar, Caesar were killed. Um, Octavian came Roman emperor, renames it, blah, blah, blah. The point, point that I wanted to get across is that at the time it was known as a miniature Rome. It was under the municipal law of Rome and was governed by two military officers appointed directly from Rome. So it had been a democracy in the Greek system, but in Roman times it was governed by uh, two military officers. And a large amount of the population was military. I use that bouncing thing again, I like that one. All right, so there are abundance of Latin inscriptions testifying to how prosperous the city was. Of course, it's, it's gold. You'd think there'd be even more people living there. But like Ephesus, it's a very mixed city. So, Paul visits there in 40 to 50, and it's told to us in Acts 16, and he's with Silas, Timothy, and perhaps Luke. The only reason we say perhaps Luke is because some of the passages say we, and of course that would be the author. And then Paul visits it a second time, and then in 61 or 62, he writes the epistle to the Philippians, and we have evidence of the Philippian church still existing 100 years later in a letter of Polycarp of Smyrna. You know me, it's before and after. So did the church exist? Then about 343, the Basilica of Paul was built. Um, that's all that's left of it now. <coughs> but at the time, it was considered one of the most magnificent basilicas in Europe. All right, to continue the timeline, 5th to 6th centuries, Actually, the city got to be popular because Paul had been there. And it kind of became a tourist place to go, and also because of the Basilica of Paul. And seven different churches were built there. And they were comparable to buildings in Thessalonica, which is actually a, a huge metropolitan area, Constantinople. Um, 
but eventually, as you can see here, through the Ostagoths, the Slavs and the Bulgars and the Turks, eventually the city was completely decimated and it's now in ruin. All right, so what I want to focus on is not only do we have the first Christian church in Europe, but we have the first European convert. Her name is Lydia. And one of the reasons I want to focus on her is because something that I think gets forgotten over time is that women were leaders of the early church. From Cherask, we put out to sea and sailed. See, you can see the we there. We put out to sea and sailed straight to Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. It was at the time. And we stayed there for several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. It's not a very large city. It doesn't have a synagogue. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of them listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia. Now, that whole description there is saying a whole lot. It's saying Lydia is from Thyatira, and she is a dyer of wool, a dyer of purple cloth. That is just one word in Greek, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. What's unusual about that, of course, if you know anything about this time, is that a woman was not free to do that if she had a husband. She couldn't say, come stay at our house. She could only say, I'll ask my husband if you can come stay at our house. But she can't just volunteer. Um, But the other thing that I want to look at that marks the Philippian church is generosity. This is the only time in Acts where somebody just immediately does that, right on their conversion, and that becomes the base of their ministry. So heroic action one, (laughs) sacrifice for the good of others. Now, why is it a heroic action? You'll see in a little bit. The Romans had worked things out with the Jews over time. So if you were a Jew, you were pretty safe and you were protected by Roman law. Jewish synagogues were actually considered colleges and therefore given special privileges. And for the most part, to be a Jew and the Roman, now, as you know, actually in the book of Acts, the Jews get thrown out of Rome. (laughs) And thus we see Priscilla and Aquila wandering around. So occasionally, they do something to tick off the emperor, but for the most part, they were protected under Roman law. And you have to remember that in the early church, and this is why when we hear about Judaizers, and we'll get to that in a minute, people who are saying that you have to be a Jew to be a Christian, that actually seems like a good idea to them, because then you're protected. If you're a Christian, you're not protected. You're bringing in a new God, and that isn't such a great idea, at least in the Roman idea. So, it's a dangerous thing for her to do in some ways is to bring in this kind of new religion. All right, and it also fits our theme that I'm looking at, generosity of the Philippine church. All right, let's look at her name. There's, here's a space that's dedicated to where she was baptized, or at least traditionally where she was baptized. Her name is an ethnicon. I don't know about you, but I love it that I've learned a new word today, an ethnicon. <laughs> <laughs> Your last name might be an ethnicon. And it, so it means that it marks that she's a Lydian woman, which means she's from Lydia. And then the second word is the Latin word for purple and relates to her connection to purple dye. And as this explains, she has social power by the fact that she is able to say, you can come stay at my house. So she's, she has to be a free woman and she's possibly a widow. We don't know for sure. Later on, she became known as Saint Lydia in the Catholic Church, but she's also called the Woman of Purple, uh, the Woman of Thertia, or Purpuraria. Purpuraria. (laughs) I wasn't familiar with that one. Uh, or of Lydia of Philippi. So she's known all these different ways. She's recognized as a saint by several Christian denominations. Now this is what's really interesting. The Eastern Orthodox Church gave her the title of equal to the apostles. So she has quite an impact on the early church. 
All right, so what happens in Philippi? Once we, there's the we again, we were going to the place of prayer. We were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, are telling you the way to be saved. <laughs> That's one of the times in Vow where you should get a little chuckle. Yes? Wow, a fortune-teller dedicated to another God is saying this. And I like it, too, because Paul doesn't immediately just turn around and do something about it. He tolerates it for a while. She kept us up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed. <laughs> I like that, too. Sometimes, you know, we tend to think, you know, St. Paul, the big deal. But he got annoyed, just like anybody else. That he turned around and said to the Spirit, Now, the reason he doesn't want to do this is because he doesn't want to happen what happens. Yes? He wants to get in there and talk about Jesus, but he doesn't want to cause trouble. But he says, In the name of Jesus Christ, the command you to come out of her, and that moment the Spirit left her. Well, as we learned last week, you hit them where it counts. Yes? And he didn't want to hit them where it counts, which was in their accounts. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, very familiar to the other story, isn't it? They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city in an uproar. Okay? Even at that time, though they were protected by Roman law, there was a lot of anti-Semitism in the world even at that time. Throwing our city into an uproar, but the important part of what they say is there and read that you can barely read. By advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. All right. So they're bringing in these new gods, these new ideas. All right. Let's talk a little bit about the spirit of divination. This is very interesting. If you look up here, pneuma is a Greek word for spirit. And there's a really interesting essay by C.S. Lewis about, about the numinous the idea that people all over the world have this idea that there are spirits in the world. And he was like, well, we're stupid, but we're not that stupid. When, you know, people are dumb, but why would people all over the world have a sense that something else is going on, unless something else was going on? <laughs> but the second word, pythoma, pythona, you see it, no, pythona? It's the python. Python in the Greek mythology was the serpent which guarded Delphi. According to the legend and related to Homeric hymn, Apollo descended from Olympus in order to select a site for his shrine and oracle. Having fixed upon a spot on the southern side of Mount Parnassus, he found it guarded by a vast, terrific serpent, which he slew with an arrow and suffered its body to rot, which is what the word python <laughs> means, puthane, in the sun. So the name of the serpent, python, means rotting, Pytho is the name of the place. They would have said Pytho. I'm sorry. I'm mispronouncing it, actually. I'm doing a modern pronunciation. Pytho would be the name of the place, and he'd be the Pythian god Apollo. You've probably heard him called that. All right, so the name Python was subsequently used to denote a prophetic demon. Now, what is word by the word demon there is off, too. Uh, in Greek, idea of demon is D-A-E-M-O-N. It's a daemon, it's a personal spirit. Everyone has a daemon, according to them. Some of them had magical, mystical, fortune-telling ones. We see this in the Latin idea that every man had a genius, which would be your personal daemon, and every woman has a Juno, which is her personal demon. Yes? Now look which one caught on, and we can see sexism at work again. All right, so she has a prophetic demon, and believe it or not, it was usually used of people who practiced ventriloquism. All right, but she was seen as inspired by Apollo, <coughs> so it makes sense. Um, so she is, is dedicated to Apollo, and that's where she gets her power, and we could tell that all from just the fact that they use that word. All right. So what does it mean they're advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice? Boy, people make similar arguments now, don't they, about all kinds of things. 
The Romans granted absolute toleration to conquered nations to follow their own religious customs and took the gods of those countries under their protection. On the other hand, there were laws which forbade the introduction of strange deities amongst the Romans themselves. Ah, and what was Philippi? A little Rome. In 186 B.C., Livy said, um, the great speaker, uh, jurist, how often in the ages of our fathers was it given in charge to the magistrates to prohibit the performance of any foreign religious rites, to banish strolling sacrifices and soothsayers from the forum, the circus, and the city, to search for and burn books of divination, to abolish every mode of sacrificing that was not conformable to the Roman practice. So they do have a legal basis for what they're saying. It was contrary to strict Roman law for Jews to propagate their opinions among the Romans. They could under anybody else, but not the Romans. And this is a what? Little Rome. <coughs> Here's an interesting little sidebar, though. This is literally a sidebar. Later on, to show you how things change, uh, Nero was emperor from 54 to 68. You know what a fun guy he was. I never knew this. All the times I've looked at stuff about him. In the reign of Nero, the religious dilettante at Rome, we get our word dilettantes from that, at Rome affected Judaism. They, Judaism became so popular that they were acting Jewish and professed to honor the name of Moses and the sacred books. Papea, Nero's consort, was their patroness, and Seneca said the Jewish faith is now received on every hand. The conquered have given laws to the conquerors. I never knew that one. That Judaism was actually so popular under Nero of all people that his own wife was their patroness. Things change, of course, again. So what else happened here? Well, I don't want to go into all the details here, but the crown joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods, and they were, and put in cells. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, again, I love the human elements to this. They're singing and praying. I'm, what do you think those other prisoners were thinking? <laughs> These guys are nuts. <laughs> They've been beaten and they're in prison. I'm sure there might have been a few of them saying from some of the other cells, like, you're in here long enough, you won't be singing songs. <laughs> and there are probably others that are, going, that are impressed and, and maybe ready to listen to their message. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake. The foundations of the prisons were shaken. All at once the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up. When he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. We're going to have our second act of heroism here. At this time, if someone was responsible for someone else as a jailer and they lost them, what did they do to the jailer? They either killed them or threw them in jail. And the jailer already knew how bad it was in jail. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. Again, I love this story. It, there's something about it that you just immediately remember. All right, so heroic action two that happens in Philippi, helping others at great personal risk, which I think Lydia was doing as well in a lot of ways. A jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas, brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, there are certain passages that I read, and I remember vividly the person who taught me all this, I wouldn't say all the stuff I know, but he got me on this road. He's Dr. William Lane. He's my professor in college, and quite the professor. And I remember specifically him laughing about this, because the guy doesn't mean my soul. He means I don't want to die for losing the prisoners or having the, the prison be opened. So it's a pun, actually. He plays off the words, doesn't he? And Paul almost kind of snarkily says, <laughs> they reply, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. So he plays off with that question. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house, and the hour of midnight they took them and washed their wounds. Wow. You realize how much trouble he could get in for that? Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. 
Yeah, that's what they usually do to prisoners. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. Boy, did he luck out. <laughs> Which could be a little hidden background lesson. Do the right thing, maybe you'll luck out. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But do they? What do we have to remember here? This is little Rome. Yes? Paul's not going to put up with that. He says to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we're Roman citizens. Uh-oh. And threw us into prison. And now they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. Wow. So we see Paul get annoyed. We also see him go in the other direction here, getting a little, little self-righteous, <laughs> but making a point. You're not just going to throw us out. You're not just going to throw out the message of the gospel. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They, it was illegal to beat a Roman citizen without trial. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After this, Paul and Silas came out of the prison. They went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them, and they left. All right, so then Paul writes the letter later after he's visited the city again. There's disagreement as to which time. Paul was in prison more than once, so we're not quite sure whenever he says, I'm in prison. He was in prison in Philippi. Um, <clears throat> so what are some of the things he talks about? One of the things he talks about are some false teachers. What's interesting here is these false teachers, and I'm still trying to figure this out, are preaching Christ to get Paul in more trouble. I guess to show he's a troublemaker. But I like that he puts a positive spin on it. He's like, the important thing is in every way, whether it's false or true motives, Christ is preached. Because of this, I rejoice. So I like that too. We're seeing another aspect of Paul. He's kind of looking at it. I think a lot of us would be like, what? Also, the letter itself stresses the importance of women. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Sintish to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have com contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Okay, so not just Lydia as a leader of the church, but we have two more leaders who he says worked at his side. Along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Okay. He definitely talks about the generosity that he experienced there. We see it in his letter. The Philippian church was used by Paul as an example of generosity so as to stimulate the Corinthians to follow through their commitment to give the needy saints. He mentions them in 2 Corinthians. Paul indicates in his letter that the Philippians were the only ones to stand behind him financially. So we see that generosity that Lydias began, continued by the jailer, continues on through the church itself. So partially his letter is a thank you to respond that he has gotten gifts of money from them to sustain him and his ministry. There's another theme of martyrdom, but I want to look at how he expresses it. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. Now, are those pretty safe words to say to the Philippians? What was his experience there? Every person we meet in Acts, did they act in this way? Yeah. So he's tapping on a theme that he knows they're familiar with. So this is keeping with our theme of generosity. Then he's reciting a Christian poem, probably a piece of liturgy. Who being the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest places and gave him the name that is above every name, that name Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth, and every tongue should acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, through the glory of God the Father." So it's very reminiscent 
of the hero cult theme, that he uses a language that will make sense to his audience. This is a person who lived a life of great sacrifice, who lived a death of, that should be commended, and has now been elevated to the status of God. That's language they were familiar with. All right, he also talks about heresy. I wish I could just skip all this part, but every one of the letters talks about some sort of heresy. Here he's not talking about people that actually are there, but he's talking about something that's going around. Furthermore, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again and to safeguard you. It's interesting he says same things because apparently his message has always been about generosity, about seeing uh, Jesus as a hero to get you through the persecutions. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision. So what he's referring to are Judaizers, and I talked about them earlier. They're people who said you have to become a Jew to be a Christian which means circumcision and keeping the laws. And of course, Paul utterly rejected that idea. But why was it appealing? Because Judaism was protected, Christianity was not. Jews had lived in Rome since the second century BC. Julius Caesar and Augustus supported laws that allowed the Jews protection to worship as they chose. As I said earlier, synagogues were classified as colleges to get around Roman laws banning secret societies. And the temples were allowed to collect the yearly tax paid by all Jewish men for temple maintenance. There had been a few problems, as I mentioned before. Jews had been banished from Rome in 139 and again in 19. 19 uh, and, and during the reign of Claudius, that's the one, 19 is the one mentioned in Acts. However, they were soon allowed to return and continue their independent existence under Roman law. So here Paul doesn't imply the Judaizers were present at Philippi. He says this by way of giving perspective to them because of their present suffering. They might be tempted to lean this way. When you're persecuted, it might be easier to just say, I'm a Jew. Believe it or not, at that time, it would have been a safer thing to say. All right, so let's skip forward. St. Polycarp writes a letter, and he's in Smyrna. He writes an epistle to Philippi, and he mentions some of the same themes. Like the last time, we see a later church writer reiterating some of the things Paul said, so we have some evidence that 100 years later, the church is still paying attention to the same message. All right, so estimated days 110 to 140. Um, and he served in Smyrna as a bishop appointed by, the, appointed by the apostles. It's a little hard to verify that since time-wise, that's a pretty big stretch. But he definitely was one of the early church fathers, and he's included in all the collections of church fathers. All right, so we see those same themes. I rejoice with you greatly in our Lord Jesus Christ, for you received the followers of the true love and escorted them on their way as befitted you. So he's mentioning pretty much, without saying it, but the jailer's generosity, Lydia's generosity, and generosity since then that Paul experienced there. He also mentions the theme as Jesus is the sacrificial hero, and that the steadfast root of your faith, which was famed in primitive faith, which was famed from primitive times, it's funny how he calls their time primitive times. He lived a couple, you know, almost 2,000 years ago to us. <laughs> So, but it's funny what other people call primitive. Abide us till now and beareth fruit until our Lord Jesus Christ, who endured to face even death for our sins, whom God raised, having loosed the pangs of Hades. And see that theme. Also, I didn't point out the word, but you remember in Paul's, uh, the earlier scripture, Paul mentioned Jesus' glory in the third paragraph, almost exactly mirrored here. Though ye saw him not, ye believe with joy and unutterable, full of glory, unto which many joy and desire to enter in, for as much as ye know is by grace you are saved, not of works, but the will of God through Jesus Christ. The Greek word for glory is kleos, which comes from the word kleo, which means to celebrate. Isn't that interesting? And it's used of Greek heroes. So again, the language echoes this idea that Jesus is the true great hero.
All right. Unfortunately, he also <laughs> mentions heresy. <laughs> and if you don't get anything else out of this, I hope that you get this, but I'd rather you didn't. that you can name all the heresies that I've gone over. Most of them are really pretty weird in their names. But we have yet another heresy. So Polycarp says this, everyone who does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is antichrist. Now, there's a whole lot else that follows that, but you can get the idea that the main theme here is that they're saying that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. So if he didn't come in the flesh, how did he come? in a spirit. So they see he was sort of a spirit body, but he wasn't actually a real human being. Now, what's interesting is how this all connects. All right, so he's referring basically to a group called the Marcionites who followed somebody named, you might guess it, Marcion. They believed in something called a docetic Christology, and you're like, oh gosh, another word. And I don't blame you. Irenaeus, who writes later, another one of the church fathers, refers to the anti-Marcionite actions of Polycarp and how he was able to convert many from the heresies of Marcion and Valentinius to orthodoxy. Irenaeus also describes a meeting that Polycarp had with Marcion himself in Rome. When Marcion asked Polycarp if he recognized him, Polycarp, and Polycarp, I gotta admit, is a silly name by modern standards, replied, I do know thee, the firstborn of Satan. <laughs> now, if you were here last week, you know what I think of arguments like that. Is that an argument from love? <laughs> is that beginning a conversation? I don't think so. So I'm not proud of him at that moment, although Irenaeus seems to be very proud of him. Heresy for Polycarp is a danger for the church worse than persecution. So basically the church is facing persecution for without, heresies for within. That's the way it sees itself. So what is docetism? Oh boy. Well, Paul actually opened the door. Remember this verse I just read earlier? Rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in what? And like I said, this was probably early Christian liturgy, made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. Okay. Now, last time, who was I talking to? When I, was it? Dan, was I talking to you about the strategic and, yeah, thought so. I heard a talk when I, I was in um, Germany, a French guy was talking about two ways of thinking, strategic and ethical is what he called them. And strategic, did I talk about this last time, like in the lecture? Okay, it just sounds familiar to me. <laughs> I was talking to you about it too. Um, strategic is, is when, is the way lawyers think, that's the easiest way for me to put it, at least American lawyers. European lawyers actually don't think this way. And ethical is more common sense. You're like, lawyers don't have common sense? No, they don't. And I'll show it to you. Okay, let's say you rented a room to someone and you said, uh, no, no cats or dogs. And they brought in elephants and pigs. Yeah. Chickens. Okay, you'd be angry with them because ethically, they were wrong, right? They should have understood what you meant. Yeah. But legally, were they wrong? No. Strategically, no. Which one were your children when you told them what to do? <laughs> Strategic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't come home drunk. So they come home high. <laughs> <laughs> don't come home real late. So they come home a little bit late. <laughs> children get really strategic. I think that Paul means this in sort of an ethically, ethical way. He doesn't mean literally, he's just trying to say something in a poetic way. But I don't think that's the way he got heard. I think he they heard him strategically. All right, so docetism comes from the Greek word meaning to appear. Those who propose this heresy maintain that Jesus really did not possess or inhabit a physical body, but only appeared to have a body. The basis of docetism is Jesus is truly a spiritual being, and as such, 
would not have had a true body. Now, some suggest that this problem was there from by the time that John wrote his gospel, which is much later than the other gospels, that they're already dealing with this problem, and it's one of the reasons that he puts in those things where Jesus is eating. If he was just a spiritual body, he wouldn't be eating. So we only get the wedding at Cana and the wine and the transformation there and where he eats fish with his disciples here. It says specifically that he's eating. Ignatius of Antioch writes it against, against it later when he says he was then truly born, truly grew up, truly ate and drank, was truly crucified, died, and rose again. All right, so they're facing that same problem. The Marcionites were docetic for reasons that we'll get into for a second, in a second. All right, Marcion believed that Jesus was the Savior sent by God and Paul was his chief apostle. So far, so good. But he rejected the Hebrew Bible and the God of Israel. Now, this will come up probably in the Bible as lit class. I think a lot of people who read the Old Testament and then read the New Testament are like, is this the same God? Because this is a little, this is a whole different thing here. Well, he did, and he's like, well, the easiest solution is this. Chuck the Hebrew Bible. We don't need it. So he just threw it out. But he didn't just throw it out. He said also that he didn't believe that the God of Israel was actually Jesus's, the same God that Jesus is a part of. He says Christ was not the son of the God of the Jews, but the son of a good God who was different from the God of the ancient covenant. Okay, now this is what's interesting. And again, I'm sorry, I put this in red. Lesson learned. It looks really good here, but up there it's not communicating very well. The, this is the way Marcion thought. The mantle of St. Paul had fallen on his shoulders because he thought that to keep the Old Testament was to just be Judaizers. There's a logic to what he's saying, isn't there? If we're not going to be Jews to be Christians, then why that book? Why at all? So he sees himself actually as a student and follower of Christ and of Paul. Yes? So it, one thing that I think is very harmful to thinking is when you think that someone else who doesn't believe what you believe is unreasonable. And until you think, how did they reason that, no matter how weirdly unreasonable it seems, you're never going to communicate with them, are you? You have to think, how did they get there? No matter how absurd it is, you have to think, how did they get there? And I know it's really hard to do, save for, uh, and there's different levels of how did they get there, like the terrorist attack in Paris. Part of me is like, how did they get there? Well, I can see their anger at the paper, the people at the paper. But then when they kill people in a, in a you know, just holding hostages, I don't get that. So I have to do more work <laughs> to figure out how in the heck somebody reasoned their way to that one than I do the first one, even though I don't agree with either. Am I making any sense? So it, it, there's a different amount of work every time. But here I think it's always good to think, okay, these people were called heretics, but they were sincere, and they believed what they believed was Christian. And we forget that sometimes because they lost, and because some of them died, were killed, actually. All right, so conclusions. Philippi's status as a Roman colony, as a little Rome, ensures Paul's safety as a Roman citizen and enables him to journey elsewhere. So, first of all, there. So, let's look at the Philippi and the Church of Philippi relate to significant themes in the New Testament literature. It relates to the Greek idea of hero, which was fundamental to the city itself, and provides Paul with a guiding idea for his description of Christ's victory and sufferings. If you look all through his letters, you can see that he knows he's speaking to a Greek audience. He himself is a Greek. He was brought up as a Jewish Greek. And so he sees the world through that heroic lens. We also see the theme of the generosity of Lydia as characteristics of the continuing church of Philippi. And fortunately this week we see that up through the centuries Philippi was known for generosity. So they didn't lose the theme like we did last week. A.D. Nock and others believe Christianity took root in Asia Minor in other parts of the Greek Empire because it related easily to previously established Greek or Middle Eastern concepts of heroes and sacrificial gods. And we can see that in this 
this letter and in this interaction. We also, and as I said, Paul's remarks about Philippi's steadfastness in the faith confirmed by Polycarp a hundred years later. So, continue our conclusions. Establishment of the church in Lydia's house and Paul's reminder of the church that the women are significant to the propagation of the gospel confirms women made significant contributions to the early church. This continued, this sense continued in the sainthood of Lydia and her title is equal to the apostles. If you want to know more about that, because I'm, I'm sending these to Jim and he sends them out to you, there's a really good article on different women mentioned in the Bible and who they were and what they did. And uh, this um, scholar tries to address some of the difficulties we have in the, in the way that Paul's le- letters seem to have differing views on women. In some places, women should be submissive to men, and in other places, he said that they're equal to him and working alongside him, and so she tries to reconcile some of those passages. It's a very interesting article. And this is what I thought was interesting, too, in terms of the, quote, heresies. Paul's warning to Judaizers reverses over time. So, Marcion promotes Paul as the anointed apostle of Christ, dismisses the Old Testament as God as secondary because he thinks it's a Judaizing idea. And I guess he's looking at it like Paul said, you know, we don't have to obey the law. Maybe he just didn't go far enough. Maybe he was just too shy to, to go all the way and say we just don't need the Old Testament God at all. But Polycarp calls them Antichrist. So it's interesting that someone sees themselves in a mission compatible with Paul doing the opposite of what Paul was trying to do. So the church continues to thrive about 600 years and they remain steadfast to Paul's teachings overall, but over time, the whole church kind of forgot women had been such significant leaders. I hate to end on a bad note, but (laughs) I always like to have that little kick to go like, if you look at the early church, they were there, there's no reason why they can't be now. Yes. gods. Yes. So how did they allow for a faith that had another god? Uh, The Jewish people believed in God. Did they just play down? I'm trying to figure out how they would allow anybody that had a god that would be in conflict with an emperor who considered himself to be a god. That one's good Hollywood, and it happened a few times. You know, actually in the destruction of the temple and the placing of of an image of Caesar in the temple caused, you know, rebellion of the Jews. So the Romans knew that there was a conflict there. But if you look at it the other way around, the normal way of viewing it, when you weren't really ticked off with the Jews, as, as was happening when they started these confrontations that happened in the temple... The Roman view was, yes, the emperor's a god, but there are many gods, right? Zeus is a god, and Hera's a god. So um, there are many gods, and, it, and so he's just the Jewish god, and he's welcome in that pantheon. Does that make sense? So the overall view was you can believe in any god you want. It, it took a while before Judaism was accepted as a part of Roman, you know, like the Jewish god was accepted as a part of their pantheon, but... Yes. That's the troublemaking part that's going to lead to some problems with Christians in Rome. But you can see, if Christians just remained Jews, they were pretty safe. If they became Christians, they could be targeted because they were trying to introduce new gods. And really, in a lot of ways, it was because they were not bringing it through the kind of proper channels, and they were trying to convert Romans. Just don't do that. At the time of Jesus... At Jesus' time, were there other faiths that worshipped only one God, that held there was a one God? (laughs) That's a complicated question. (laughs) Uh, Yes, Hinduism believes there is one God. Hinduism, yeah, I, I know they're known for being polytheistic, but Hinduism believes there is one God in many God forms. 
in fact, this is the reason that Christianity doesn't take hold in India. It's because they come and they say, build your temple. Yeah, there's one God, many paths. You're welcome. So they, they weren't really interested in being converted. If that makes any sense. So, and then there had been other attempts. In Egypt, there had been an attempt to have a one God theory that didn't pan out. And mostly, I think that was about money and politics more than real deep-rooted faith or whatever. But that's my theory. And that's my... Zoroaster also, but not in that time. Uh, well, yeah, Zoroaster believed there was one God. And uh, kind of two, like a dark God and a light God. But So in one sense, not one God, but in another sense, yes, just one, because there was only one worth worshiping, right? There was only one that was going to win, yes. Uh, when you... Uh uh, you said that the, uh, that knocks in my brain right out, that thing in front of me. Uh, <laughs> when you said that the, uh, it was all right as long as you didn't try to convert a new religion to a Roman. Now, how did you, a little bit later, there were all these people that were acting like Jews and saying great things about them. How did that happen without somebody telling them, uh, about Judaism and how wonderful it was and so forth. Well, that, yeah, that's basically what happened, is over time they became kind of impressed with the Jewish people to the point that they were, they became fashionable. It's an odd thing to think about now. It only makes sense to me somehow if you think about that uh, in reverse when say Harry Houdini who was Eric Weiss came to America, it was fashionable to be a Christian. And so he refashioned himself so that his name was Harry Houdini. Nobody knew for sure if he was Jewish. I mean, if, if you asked, of course he would say, and he, it wasn't that he was ashamed, but he, he certainly publicly put himself out as a Christian. He so he was being strategic. And so I think in the sense that the fact that the Jews gained enough attention from Rome that they actually thought it became stylish to be Jewish, that's very interesting well, development. This, this has made it so that, you know, I always was thinking of you guys as bad people. You get killed. You can't do much when you're dead. Well, when you think about it, logically, what Paul is saying doesn't make a lot of logical sense. If Jesus was a Jew and he was sacrificed for the Jews, primarily. And that the early Christians really had a lot of trouble with this idea that he also had been sacrificed for the Gentiles. They argued over that. And it was Peter and Paul, that, according to Acts, who opened that door. But Peter and Paul were both ridiculed for it, for this idea. It was a very strange idea. So if you think, all right, he's a Jewish king. He's crucified. And, and he's attacked by the Jewish leaders. How do you make, what? That he died for everybody, it didn't make sense to people. So it made more sense, I think logically it makes more sense you have to be a Jew to be a Christian if you're gonna have this unified view that there is. And remember, they don't have a New Testament. It's being written. <laughs> there is no New Testament. So you know, as I've talked about before, Paul doesn't quote the Gospels. They're not around that much yet. And even things that he says that are liturgical, we don't find those in the Gospels either. So we have liturgies that developed that didn't become a part of our canon now. That, are you seeing what I'm saying? So they lived in a different world, and they were still making up their mind. But, it but made sense to me. And I don't know, if I lived at that time, I thought it made more sense to be a Jew, to be a Christian, than the other way. Before we run clear out of time, <laughs> one quick announcement. We do have this PowerPoint from today and last week's PowerPoint they're residing in the cloud in the PowerPoint file, <laughs> and Rich Milligan has those and is going to get those out to the mailing list of the class. And you can get them at the podcast. And if you want to make sure that Rich has your email address, jot it down on a piece of paper and, and make sure Rich gets it this morning. Tomorrow afternoon at 2 o'clock, I'm going to be as a senior guest student at Kent State in Dr. Lloyd's class, the Bible as literature. This is the second course that I've taken from Dr. Lloyd. And I remember the day about two or three years ago when 
Dr. Lloyd came to class in the first course I took from him and said, wait till you guys see what I've learned about PowerPoint. <laughs> and it's all of those fade-ins and fade-outs and the checkerboards between slides. He came into class all pumped up because he'd either discovered it on his own or somebody taught him. And it is interesting how you go from slide to slide rather than just a simple switch change. He's got all these little buttons he can push and most of us haven't learned that. I may take a nap, that's right, because I've got to stay up till 1 o'clock tomorrow night to watch the Buckeyes play. So I may have to nap during Dr. Lloyd's class at 2 o'clock tomorrow. Any other quick questions? <laughs> You're welcome.